So since I think we're on here. Yes, I'm the only thing standing between you and lunch, so I will promise to be ahead of time. Um, the question that we're dealing with here is, in fact, Jyoti, if she's still around, I kind of borrowed some of her slides with a very different perspective. I want to thank Bob for process, and also the metric comment. Our company started five years ago, and we started at the roots of the National Science Foundation, who was trying to create a program to scale innovation on the $7 billion annual budget that they spend for the last 40 years funding basic research. If you think that's a good idea or not, ask Sergey and Larry, who got a little NSF grant, and good things came from Google. And they came to the issue of we want to give tools, metrics, and scale, not just to the NSF, but today the NIH, DOD, DOE, and others. And what we found is we've now worked with 15,000 teams globally. They've done almost a half million hypotheses that they've tested. They've gotten on the building 421,000 times, and they've pivoted 55,000 times. You want metrics? These are metrics of progress. And the question is, what have we learned? over these five years. All of this data, and we, by the way, view innovation as a huge big data problem. In the 1980s, a meeting like this on quality management would have been TQM. Anyone against quality, raise your hand. But until GE adopted Six Sigma, and we had metrics to drive quality, it was very much a conversation, but not a process. Well, we've learned that no successful venture winds up where it started. There's not a successful company in this room today I would bet that's doing the exact same thing they did when the company started. Bezos was going to sell books. Google was originally going to be a utility inside large companies to look at their own data internally. Those were their original business plans. Thank God they changed. The other thing we've learned is there's countless mistakes, changes, and pivots along the way, right? We have to figure out how to do it in a lean, agile way, but we change. The other thing to think about is there's not a structured way to share these learnings. We are doomed to repeat them. $1.6 trillion spent in R&D, and why doesn't more money lead to more results? Because we keep making the same mistakes across teams, across divisions, and across time. So the question is, how do you view this as a big data problem, or better yet, a big data opportunity to scale your innovation investment? So let's define a new phrase, innovation capital. It is, in fact, the talent in your company, both employees, contractors, and they bring to the table powerful ideas. They are smart professionals. The men and women that you're lucky to work with are not ideal limited, but the culture is critical. How do you view failure? Because there will be many failures on the road to success. We work with the Mayo Clinic, and when those teams of innovators finish their process, they go through a process called Lessons Learned, huge auditorium, 50,000 employees at Mayo Clinic, and over 1,000 are in this room. Most importantly, the chief science officer is over there. These people dream of bumping into him in the hall someday. He's listening to their work. 80% are going, we're not going ahead with this thing. This makes no sense. But the standing ovation is led by the chief science officer because their work made Mayo Clinic smarter and better. And that's embracing the process of change at a very senior level. But the point we're making today is that there's data under every customer discovery interview. There's data behind every pivot and insight. I may be mildly nauseous, I think is the quote of the day, to think that Jyoti's whiteboard would be erased, to think that those post-it notes would be thrown away, to think that some insight is buried in some email that somebody who's no longer at the company sent to someone else who's no longer at the company. Imagine if you could repurpose and reanimate the institutional knowledge embedded in all the investments we make in all the projects. Because the intellectual exhaust, if you condense it, could be the jet fuel for a great idea tomorrow. Think of the changes that occur Inside the building, we've got great people. 
there's market data and reports out there about the coming horizon of change. Um, our co-founder, Steve Blank, is fond of saying the market research firms are famous at predicting the past. Because if they could predict the future, they'd run a hedge fund and they'd be billionaires. So let's agree that there's a grain of salt to be taken with everything they suggest, but there are some trends. We're just not sure when virtual and augmented reality will transform our world. But outside the building, the theme of lean is talking to customers. And successful innovation programs look with the microscope carefully. What's feasible? What can we do? I'm still waiting for the anti-gravity boots. Pretty sure they're not going to happen right away. But what's desirable? Let's get our telescopes out and get the feedback early and often of the desirability function. And to stay with the scope mentality, let's get a periscope. Is this adaptable? There was an industry that was created that lasted nine months. It was created when the day VisiCalc came out. But anyone who remembers VisiCalc for spreadsheet, impossible to use, but much better than a real spreadsheet. And an industry arose of VisiCalc templates. It was just too damn hard. But in nine months, two things happened. Customers got smarter and the software got better. The industry came and went. So if you were going to invest heavily in the VisiCalc template business, there was no adaptability. The magic moment is all of these three things aligning. You now have a viable option worthy of investment. But we've gone through 50 years in Silicon Valley of faith-based innovation. You know that's true because 90% of venture portfolio investments fail. And that's OK. Because 10% make it, and of the 10%, 10% of those really make it. They are in a hits business. Bob liked to show the chart here with the guesses or hypotheses. Think about the left side of the canvas as feasibility. Do we have the resources, the activities, and the partners to do this thing? But before we do this thing, does anyone care? So much R&D money is spent, I can do this, therefore I will, without an attention to who cares. And by the way, is it adaptable to the reasonably predictable changes on the horizon, and can we make money doing it? I'll wait for the slide pictures. There we go. Okay. So what's interesting is execution is why the companies that are in this room from large companies are here. You guys execute like crazy. And the next thing you have to do in Horizon One Innovation is you have to be able to search for how do you do what you do now a little faster, a little better, a little cheaper. So to make no mistake, those are, in fact, innovations. McKinsey called them Horizon One Innovations. They're not particularly easy, but they are vital. Well, I was at a Google conference I gave a talk about eight years ago, and it was great. Sergey Brin said, the only thing harder than search is discovery. Because in discovery, you don't know what you're searching for. And if you think about that, that's part of the challenge of all the innovators in the room, is if we knew the answer, we'd do it. When you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, how do you feel? You don't say, well, guess. You're the doctor. You're smart. You don't do that. You give them symptoms. You give them suggestions. The TV show House was great, differential diagnostics. Start limiting what can be done, what can't be done, what it might be, what it not, might not be. There's a great quote that every conference has to do at least once, so if I, no one's done it yet, I will now. Edison, who said, I haven't failed, I've just done 10,000 things that don't work. This is a page of his lab notebook from 1876. What you should notice is copious notes. He had no clue what might have caused the failure, so he had to write down everything, every possible observation, so he could later on correlate the common themes of failure and the common themes of success. If you went into an electronic lab today, there are sensors sensing temperature, humidity, ambient light, oxygen levels, everything possible, because we're just not sure what's really going to matter. So let's have a Hoover vacuum approach. Let's take it all in and quantify the impact later. If you think about what we're doing here within the companies, the headquarters, and if you're fortunate and you're distributed like that org chart, 
you know, Harvard Business School started in 1908 because we had roads, we had highways, we had railroads. We were going to put offices outside of headquarters. We had to train administration of business. Not innovation of business, but administration of business. So the people of all these outflown enterprises may or may not have ideas. They may have tried the same thing you're trying in London six weeks ago in Rio and two years ago in Paris. You don't know this. So you will continue to make the mistakes. Yes, we need to get out of the building. We're going to talk to customers. Trust me, folks, this is data. And every time the data is not captured and shared transparently and collaboratively, you're going to do it again. So I love the fact that we have a very similar shot of the sky. Thank you, Dodie. We're looking for pattern recognition. And if you think about the decisions, at least in my career, that I've made that I'm most proud of, it's because I kind of had pattern recognition. I had luck, timing, but I don't want to do that. Why? Because it killed me last time. I'd prefer not to die again. And the issue of pattern recognition requires pattern acquisition. We have to go collect the dots before we can connect the dots. And what we've learned with 15,000 teams is the most successful teams have diversity, tenacity, but most important, resiliency. Because we know they're not going to wind up where they start. And if they are hell-bent to prove themselves right, if they've fallen in love with what they know, they're doomed. They have to fall in love with learning what they need to know. And that is a big idea. And since we've already done, thank you, Doty, the moonshot, let me tell you what we take out of this. Yuri Gagarin had circled the globe, and John F. Kennedy was afraid that Russia was going to own the Milky Way. Turned out they only owned the White House. Um, but if you were an astronaut in 1960, and you heard President Kennedy say this, you are happy. You made the right career choice. You've trained for years. You're in shape. You're fit and you are going to possibly be the first human being on the moon. This is exciting, right? Until you do a little research. In 1980, we sent up 38 orbital launches, and 19 of them blew up. And you're thinking, maybe I don't want to be first. Maybe I don't want to be, maybe I want to be 39th, because you don't want to die. You want your rocket ship to actually take you safely, and God willing, bring you back. So the newly formed NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration was set to task. Guys, these are not good odds. These odds of failure will kill the program before it starts. So NASA and the DOD created a document to quantify the risk of technology. Now, you can imagine two federal agencies cooperating. First of all, that's hard to believe. And you can imagine how big this document must be. It's one page long. And what they were able to do was quantify technology readiness level. Any idea, pencil sketch it, put it on a napkin, I don't care, it's a TRL-1. Just an idea. Breadboard prototype, field test. TRL-9, get on that rocket ship, bring me back some moon rocks, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Why can't we do that for innovation? And the answer is we can. The investment readiness level is a way of quantifying the risk within an innovation portfolio based on the metrics that we now understand are vital. Do you have product market fit? Is there a minimum viable product? Have you found a repeatable, scalable model worthy of investment? And the beauty of this is it's transparent. Stefan, we're going with your project. Why? It's an IRL of six. Jennifer, I'm sorry, it's an IRL three. But Jennifer says, wait a minute, I can be an IRL six, I need $5,000 in six weeks, and I'm gonna run this experiment, knock yourself out. Michael needs $12 million to build a factory, and he'll know in three years. I don't know, maybe, but it's a lot harder to say yes. There are metrics that matter that we have ignored, have not captured, have not analyzed, and therefore, with all the pretty words we put on the slide, 
we're still practicing not evidence-based, but faith-based innovation. We're taking our best guesses, they're educated guesses, we're smart men and women, we're not trying to do it wrong, we're still gonna be wrong a whole bunch. So, anyone been to a supermarket in the last, I don't know, decade? Whatever aisle you go down, whatever food you buy, there are nutritional fact labels. We understand the components of nutrition. If you are diabetic, I suggest avoid the sugar. Got a heart pres blood pressure problem? Stay away from salt. Low-carb diet, the numbers are there for you to pick. Um, nothing healthy on that screen, by the way. So the question is, if we know at an atomic level the building blocks of nutrition, why are we so ignorant of the building blocks of innovation? And the answer is we're not. We just haven't framed it as a big data analytics problem. So here's a case study. 15,000 teams, half a million interviews, 50,000 pivots. Teams are wrong. 7.6 times for every time they're right. Which if you think about that canvas that, that you've seen, there's nine boxes, two or three assumptions in a box, maybe there's 30, like 30 guesses. Of the 30 guesses, if I come back to you in a couple of months, you're gonna find that of those 30 guesses, very few of them are right. So we started working with a large corporate client. We went through a little cohort of 10 teams and we were very scared. In fact, we realized if this company were public, we would short the stock. We had never seen something quite this bad. They thought their customer segments were hospitals. Well, a hospital would imply I go to the front desk, I show my business card, I pick up the check, we're done. And they said, well, no, not hospitals, it's, it's cardiothoracic surgeons. And I said, okay, so I'm gonna knock on the operating room door and the surgeon's gonna look up from surgery and say, yeah, the money's under the table, just come grab it. And they said, well, no, 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 of course not. It's gonna be cardiothoracic surgery purchasing in product acquisition. I said, really, all hospitals? Well, no, actually, urban hospitals with 300 beds that do at least 40 surgeries a month. Okay. So you start defining the process. So after our dismay at this obviously objectively metrically defined failure, the client did something brilliant. Every member of a team mentored the next cohort. Every member mentored the next cohort. They've established the gold standard. We have never seen this level of efficiency and performance because the hypotheses before they test them start to make sense. And they're doing them faster. It used to take two years for a project to go from idea to either kill or fill. Now, every eight weeks, I agree with the reporting in, you report in weekly. If I assign a book to a student and there's neither a book report nor an exam, they probably won't read the book. Agile software development, you have daily scrums, and you ship product every one or two weeks. You use JIRA, it's a process, peer pressure, peer support, management supervision, it's simple, right? Anyone ever use salesforce.com? By the way, there were sales made before salesforce.com, we know this for a fact. But what salesforce.com does is it says the data is the companies, not the salespersons, not the Rolodex. Seamless transition from one to the other, but there's weekly pipeline calls. You're reporting in, why? Bad week, bad month, bad month, bad quarter. Bad quarter, bad year. So you use software to insulate the data. You use processes to reinforce the urgency. And at the end of JIRA for software, at the end of Salesforce for sales management, you're dealing with evidence and facts. So the role of innovation capital is to really synthesize, analyze, and visualize your innovation portfolio. And that informs you to make evidence-based decisions on where you want to invest the people, the money, the talent, and the time to drive forward your opportunity. 
So what I want to do is a little bit different, since I actually have two whole minutes left, is see if there are any questions before I let you go to lunch about the role that we believe innovation capital and metrics play in driving accelerating the time to truth. So if there are any questions, we'll take them for one minute. And if not, you can go have lunch. OK, yes. What did you mean by mentored a few slides okay. before? Great. So Carl, if you and me and Bob were a team, and we've gone through eight or 10 weeks of trying to figure out if the canvas makes sense, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Carl, I'd like you to mentor the next cohort, the next group. Just mentor them, help them. And I don't mean help them do the business. You're a process coach. You're going to say, no, no, hospitals. No, hospitals is not a segment. You're going to say, how many people think millennials is a customer segment? Raise your hand. Come on, be honest. Millennials? Yeah. No. 18-year-old fraternity kid, Purdue, drunk all night. He's a millennial. 27-year-old married lawyer. She lives in Manhattan with two kids. She's a millennial. Let's get real. Millennials is not a customer segment. So you're stress testing the hypothesis so they don't run stupid experiments and waste time and money. So the mentoring is simply expanding. By the way, this company now has done 150 teams, 8,000 interviews. And if you think of an innovation sprint as a 100-yard dash, they start on the 20-yard line. Before they begin, they look at the interviews they've done over the last year and a half. Oh, there's someone we talked to at the Pentagon. Here's a remote sensing idea. They may be not completely relevant to the new project, but they inform them. If our team, if our company were 14 people, three years from now it'll be 28 people. We know the folklore. We know the memory. Remember we called Kodak? Oh, yeah, that was a disaster. We all know the story. Well, when you go from 14 to 1,400 to 14,000 people, when the founders may or may not be involved, who the hell knows those stories? Nobody. So every large company here, you have unfair advantages. You have business model canvases where you can kick ass. I challenge that your ability to articulate your own business model canvas is imperfect at best. If you can't do that, how do you find other canvases out there that fill in your gaps? Where are the partners? Where are the channels? Where are the key resources, right? I mean, the reason that Facebook bought Instagram, customer segment, younger demo. The reason Priceline bought Kayak, cheaper clicks than Google. It was cost. So think about what do you need out of the relationship. And a partner is someone who agrees you're a partner. Otherwise, it's a vendor-supplier relationship. And a partner is going to say, oh, God, I can't stop talking about Carl. He's amazing. Let me tell you what he's done for me. A lot of people put in the partner box people who would not know you existed. They deposit your check gleefully, and you're just a customer. So, so the whole idea of, of the concept that you want is at the water cooler. The conversations are an interesting hypothesis. How would you test that? What evidence would we acquire? What evidence do we already have? And if those aren't the conversations you're having, as much as you want to dress up your innovation projects, you're still doing faith-based innovation. And we think the time has come to do evidence-based innovation.